So Money Episode 177, Paul Zak. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Quick happy birthday shout out to my mom. Mom turns, well, I won't say how old she's turning today, but it's a special birthday. And I just want to say happy birthday, mom. I love you. I'm not sure if you're listening to this podcast, but I'll call you later and make sure that uh, we connect. But it's a special day in uh, the Tarabi household. Mom is celebrating her birthday and I hope you got my card. My guest today, everyone, is Dr. Paul Zak. He's a scientist, prolific author, and public speaker, but that's not all. Dr. Zak has the very unique job title of neuroeconomist. He has degrees in mathematics and economics and also has postdoctoral training in neuroimaging. In 2004, his lab discovered that the brain chemical oxytocin allows us to determine whom we can trust. And since then, he's continued to study the chemical and his current research has shown that oxytocin is responsible for virtuous behaviors, working as the brain's, quote, moral molecule. And this knowledge is being used to understand the basis for civilization and modern economies, improve negotiations, and treat neurologic and psychiatric disorders. The possibilities are endless. And he's written a book called The Moral Molecule, The Source of Love and Prosperity, about his discoveries on oxytocin. He has a fascinating perspective on decision-making and finance, And that is precisely why I'm really excited to have him on the show to learn from him. We learn what it means to be a neuroscientist. You know, he kind of invented this field. Uh, We talk about how oxytocin plays a significant role in some of the choices that we make in life, particularly our money choices. I even get the chance to get his opinion on Greece and his take on how to solve the Greek debt crisis. He actually has a solution. So without further ado, here is Dr. Paul Zak. Dr. Paul Zak, welcome to So Money. Great to have you. Thank you, Farnoosh. Now, you went ahead and gave yourself your own title of, for your career, your profession. Um, you are a neuroeconomist. Uh, what does that mean? And good for you for giving yourself your own title. <laughs> I don't know if I gave myself that, but I certainly helped start this field. So neuroeconomics studies brain activity while people make decisions, decisions involving money, involving other people. And uh, I did read your bio, so I know that you have never made a bad decision involving money. But, you know, other people (laughs) who make those decisions. What's the deal there? We have these big brains, human beings. How come we make mistakes when it comes to money? So we're going to get into some of those mistakes and why we do them. Um, but first, a little bit more about your background. I understand that you have for years been particularly interested in the molecule oxytocin. That's right. So my lab was the first to discover the behavioral effects of this uh, brain chemical. And it was classically known to be associated with birth and breastfeeding in women. Um, but there was a large animal literature showing that oxytocin signal safety or trust or familiarity. And we show that that same signal works in human beings. So it's this molecule that makes us tangibly care about other people, 
both in terms of trusting others with our money, uh, but also more generally making us feel more empathic, more connected, even to complete strangers. And I think that's a, a really interesting part of our human nature. Um, now, it can be abused. We've done studies on psychopaths and con men um, who kind of abuse this trust connection system using oxytocin. But in general, most people have an intact system and it essentially works like the, the golden rule. You're nice to me. My brain makes oxytocin and it motivates me to reciprocate and be nice to you. Mm. And your book is called The Moral Molecule, The Source of Love and Prosperity. Um, uh, what were some of your more, I guess, uh, more exciting discoveries on oxytocin in that book? Yeah, thank you for asking. I mean, a couple of those I think are very interesting. One is that we found about 10 years ago that countries with high levels of trust are more prosperous, that is, standards of living are higher. So they're higher because they have better uh, formal institutions, that governments work better. They're also higher because people are uh, socializing at a higher rate. So Sometimes social interactions lead to economic transactions, which lead to the creation of wealth. And so we really looked at this kind of foundational effect that allows human beings to create wealth from interactions with each other, which is really unique to human beings. So I think that's the first one. The second one is that oxytocin is active in evolutionarily old parts of the brain. In fact, it, it predates uh, mammals. The history of oxytocin goes back at least 400 million years into fish. And so this signal of connection and care, which is very powerful in, in humans in a, in a real neurologic sense, uh, means that social, socializing our social nature is a key part of our human nature. That is, we are social creatures by design. And because of that, um, you know, it means that we can create value. We can identify strangers who we want to be around to build businesses with, to be friends with, to build romantic relationships and we do that quite naturally. Uh, and I guess the third thing, very quickly, is is that the reason uh, we can sustain ourselves as part of uh, the, the social community is because we have this internal sense of right and wrong. And oxytocin gives us the sense of how it feels to be treated by another person. And so once we're more sensitive to that, we end up treating people well most of the time. And of course, the the story gets interesting when you have to ask when most of the time occurs, and that's the research we did for a dozen years. So I think those are the three big take-homes. What, what role does oxytocin play in how we make financial decisions? So in general, it plays no role. So if I'm just going to go to the store and uh, you know buy a, a tin of coffee, um, I'm just thinking about you know what I like, what kind of coffee I like, what the prices are. And that uses a bunch of interesting brain systems that allow me to uh, create a subjective uh, sense of value. Economists call that utility. So uh, I think one of the key findings from neuroeconomics is that we have this internal utility function, like we learned in Econ 1, which is really interesting. In fact, all animals have that. For this work we did recently uh, with the rewards program Plenty, we asked more generally what happens when you're shopping and you get an unexpected reward, like from a loyalty program. In that case, we showed that compared to individuals who uh, are not getting this unexpected reward, that your brain not only creates uh, a variety of chemicals that make you more relaxed, your stress levels go down, but also pumps out oxytocin at a very high rate, average 67% increase in oxytocin for people who got this unexpected reward while shopping. Why is that? It's because uh, the reward program connects us to the store 
to the experience and to the person who is giving us that reward. So for us, you, you probably have this experience like I have. You know, you go into the store and, you know, you're in some reward program and the clerk says, oh, you know, you, you just uh, got a free sandwich or you've got, uh, you know, $40 worth of points you can spend towards your new pair of shoes. And you're so happy. And so we really want to know, you know, what that social experience is for shopping when it's not, uh, you know, the, the buying coffee example is kind of a purely selfish experience. But once we add in these loyalty programs, it becomes a social experience. And I think that's very interesting. So that social experience from the store's perspective, we showed not only makes customers happier, it builds loyalty. Um, people love this experience. So there's a reason why we like these loyalty programs. We like spend plenty. more. <laughs> yeah, we spend more, but also we're happier. So we showed that uh, compared to people who didn't get the rewards uh, in our study, and I can tell you more about the details of that. We did blood draws and we took a lot of uh, neurologic data to to uh, confirm this, people were actually, yeah, 14% happier when they got their reward, not surprisingly. But they're, in fact, they were a lot happier uh, a week later when we followed up. They wanted to go back to that store. And yet we do spend more, but we're going to spend anyway. So the loyalty programs are a way to make us actually feel better neurologically about the spending we're doing anyway. Mm. Why did you want to do that study in particular? You know, it's such a great question. Um, when the folks at Plenty uh, uh, contacted me and said, you know, we're launching this new program, all these different uh, partners like Macy's and Rite Aid, and you can share points and, and you know, use the points, whatever store you want to go to. Great. And so we're actually curious on why people love loyalty programs. And they said, you know, you're supposed to be some expert about the brain. Can you help us figure this out? And I said, gosh, that's a really good question that I hadn't thought of. So I love when, when people come to me with good questions I haven't thought of. I'm like, oh, man, that's a great question. Because I've had that experience, I'm sure you've had that experience, where you're so happy when you get that reward. What the heck is going on in your brain and what to do immediately and then, you know, a week later down, downstream? So, yeah, I love that question. I thought it was a great one. I'd love to turn, turn the conversation out to find more about your own personal financial perspectives on things, especially with your background as a neuroeconomist. What would you say is your number one financial philosophy that guides your money-making decisions? That's a great question. I mean, uh, number one, it's hard to say, but I think, you know, I've tried to take the research we've done very seriously. Um, and I think one of the most, you know, important ones of those is uh, that when it comes to making serious financial decisions, the area of the brain that uh, allows you to plan in the front of the brain called the prefrontal cortex is actually the last to come online. So emotional parts of the brain, parts that have to do with how our bodies feel, those activate very rapidly for any situation we're in. Um, so the, this kind of planning part, the weighing costs and benefits, that's a slower process in the brain. It's, it's more lately evolved in human beings. And so what that means is for a serious decision, you need to slow down that decision. And so uh, buying a house, buying a car, uh, sleep on it overnight. Uh, sleep is a wonderful way uh, that the brain uh, we call consolidates memory. So basically it takes all the information you've gotten during the day and essentially categorizes them. So if you slow down decisions, including overnight sleep, then generally you'll make better decisions. So, uh, you know, you've seen all those infomercials like I have. It's, you know, by now, you got to get the next two minutes. Well, there's a reason for that because you're not actually using all your cognitive resources when you make this slap judgment. So to the extent that you can slow down decisions, 
in general, they're going to be better decisions. So slow down, you'll make better decisions. I like that. Same true, same true with, uh, I would say with food and consumption, right? Like if you just actually take a minute to think about what is better, a better choice to eat or what are your options as opposed to just grabbing and, go, and eating on the run. I find that that is especially true. I agree. All right. How about um, a memory growing up? And did you always, first of all, know that you wanted to enter this field? I'm curious. And, and that's more of a sidebar. But uh, the real question that I want to ask is, um, what would you say is a pivotal memory growing up that had something to do with money that now as an adult, you look back and you reflect and you go, you know, that was a very, uh, that was a very instrumental time and experience. You know, it shapes the way that I think about money today. Yeah, that's a great question, too. And actually, I really like the story in my book. Uh, when I was 18, I, I worked at a gas station uh, near Freeway in Central California. And uh, let me tell you, if you work at a gas station by the freeway for a year, you see <laughs> every aspect of human life from uh, the gangbangers and the prostitutes and, uh, you know, the desperate, the drunks. Um, anyway, uh, one evening, uh, I was the victim of a con. Uh, a very classic con in which uh, a man claims he finds a beautiful piece of jewelry, pearl necklace in the bathroom, and blah, blah, blah. I open the cash register and give him 100 bucks. And so, um, you know, it became very clear that, you know, within about 20 minutes that I had been conned out of that money. And the, the beautiful piece of jewelry I was holding was just cheap paste. Um, so that really led me into thinking about human beings more generally, right? I grew up in a, you know, safe environment. I didn't know about bad people. I didn't, I didn't really, you know, I didn't have the experience. And so um, I think it makes you a more skeptical person, a more thoughtful person. And I certainly became interested in, in human beings and human nature and more generally this kind of sense of good and evil. Um, you know, it's, it is interesting that, you know, looking back now, 30 years later, this poor guy is taking advantage of an 18 year old high school kid to make a hundred bucks. I mean, it's kind of sad, right? That that's, mm. that's your best earning opportunity. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, you know, uh, that was foundational for me in terms of wanting to study human beings, including studies and, in, you know, that involve money to really understand how the economy works and how human beings interact with each other in economies to create wealth, to support themselves. And also why that sometimes fails. So, any thoughts on how we can solve this Greek debt crisis? <laughs> well, uh, I do. I mean, uh, I was in Greece uh, a couple of years ago with my daughter, who was about uh, 13 at the time. Um, and, and listeners will know, 13-year-old girls don't generally hold hands with their dads. We got to Athens and she <laughs> held my hand the entire time. Yeah. Uh, Greece is not in good shape. So, it's too expensive. They need to go off the euro and uh, I, I readopt the drachma. That'll cause a devaluation. It will uh, initially certainly worsen the, the real depression that they're in, but it'll allow them to compete more effectively in the global marketplace. The prices are, I mean, the Greek has always been, the Greeks have always had a, a poor economy in the last, I mean, since the 60s, honestly. And so uh, to have a, a poor economy that's very expensive is not doing them any good. And it doesn't mean the rest of the Eurozone fails. It just means I think Greece should not have been admitted uh, so anyway, uh, that's the simplest solution. I think we should just accept that it was a mistake uh, to mm -hmm. put Greece on and then they can be master of their own house and they don't have to have uh, Berlin or, or, you know, uh, wherever tell them what to do. Right. Yeah. It'll be, uh, it will be a tough, that sounds like a very tough short term 
adjustment, but in the long run, it's probably what needs to happen. It's the tough, uh, it's a tough choice. What about a soul money moment? Well, actually, first, let's talk about failure because um, I think we can all agree that with failure comes oftentimes, just like your story, you know, you were conned, but it was this really interesting awakening. Um, what would you say is your biggest financial failure? What did you learn? And um, and what, what kind of grew out of that? Yeah, gosh, it has so many. So I should say for, for listeners, um, you know, probably two thirds of my portfolio is in index funds. So I don't actively manage it. I let it move with the market. And then about a third I actively manage. And in, in some of that third, I, I try to invest in areas where I think I have some expertise, and particularly in biotech uh, and in the neuroscience realm, where I think I might be able to understand the literature and the potential market uh, for these uh, different drugs and devices, maybe better than than general public or or even analysts, uh, but sometimes uh, you know you make mistakes. So um, many years ago, my brother-in-law was involved in a startup, uh, a very interesting company that had a very interesting product, uh, had uh, patents, that had uh, professional management who had run you know large companies, and I invested in um, uh, their initial uh, public offering. And it was a huge mistake because the guys running it, even though they had great resumes, were uh, either inept or con men or both. So, you know, uh, going in there, I mean, I got to watch the stuff you're supposed to do, right? Went to their, their offices, met these guys, shook their hands, and, uh, and then wrote them a check. And, uh, you know, from the get-go, it was a problem, right? They, they didn't do quarterly statements. They, you know, they, the accounting was a mess. The whole thing was, was a big fail, and I thought somehow because my brother-in-law worked there, who was a great guy, it is a great guy, uh, that I had some inside information. So, um, you know, I think the old saying, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is, uh, is correct. So, uh, Okay, let's flip it now and talk success. Your proudest financial moment, so money moment. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's some really nice ones that I've had. And um, uh, one of those was a, a device um, – I have an appointment in neurology, neurology department too uh, at Loma Linda University Medical Center, and I remember going to a to a um, the seminars in, in medical schools are called grand rounds. So going to grand rounds and having a presentation of a device that was uh, FDA approved to release uh, sorry to relieve uh, epilepsy, so stop seizures. It's a device that's implanted in the chest and works in a very interesting pathway in the brain. So, you know, these implantable devices now are, are really big, but this is about uh, 15 years ago. And they were uh, sort of offhandedly, the rep for this company said, oh, we're starting to do trials for depression. So this device may actually also treat depression for people who fail pharmacological treatments. And bam, that light went off. And I said, oh, that's a, I mean, depression is a much bigger disease than is epilepsy. And uh, anyway, uh, a company was called Cyberonics invested uh, probably a couple hundred shares, and I think I made a 400% return. So, uh, you know, I think that, again, the take-home is listening carefully, but I think being focused on, for me, at least being focused on, you know, one industry or one and a half industries, kind of neuroscience, medicine, uh, and just trying to pick up these little pieces of information that other people may not find. And let me tell you, they, they don't come very often, but uh, when they do, I think, you know, it, it is worth acting on. I suspect that you might be a man of good habits. I don't know. I'm just getting a, um, that's my sense of things. If when it comes to money, uh, what would you say is your number one financial habit? 
You know what I did many years ago was I did uh, for my paycheck uh, a direct um, transfer from when my check is deposited the first of the month to my uh, Vanguard index fund. So uh, every month, a set amount of money is taken out. In fact, when I get a raise, I increase that amount of money. So every month, I just don't see that chunk of money. It goes right to the index fund. Uh, I like Vanguard because the the, uh, rates, as you know, are very low to manage the funds. Um, So it's just kind of magical. And I think, you know, the the magic of compounding is the most amazing thing. And you've just got to consistently put money away to be able to build up uh, enough wealth. So, um, yeah, make it automatic. I don't want to be, um, Mm. I hope I have good habits, but I don't want to be driven by, you know, gosh, look at that beautiful car or whatever, you know, thing can catch your attention. It just disappears. And then, yeah, my paycheck's smaller, but you know, after a while you just don't remember it. So I get a lot of questions from, uh, well, my younger audience say the 20 something subset, they sometimes write in wondering how they can get started in investing. And I know that's just code for Farnoosh can give me some good stock picks or, you know, how do I beat the market? And if I would love for you to kind of direct an answer to them and say, you know, here's my best advice. If you're just starting out in investing, I mean, my theory is that you just, you can't really, sorry, that's my son crying in the background. Take a break. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. Um, he's with his nanny, and I'm, I'm in the middle of moving, so I normally record this in another uh, part of the apartment. But I'm it's it's I'm, I'm in flux right now. But I, I hope that's I love children, and it's nice to hear him in the background, even if he's making a little noise. It's great. <laughs> he's so a good boy. He's a good boy. He's yeah. probably just tired or hungry. Um, so yeah, what what advice would you have? for a young adult who is really, really hungry to get into the stock market, the stock market. You know, they hear all this cool stuff about it. They watch TV. They think it's going to be this great opportunity now to invest when they're young. Uh, What would you say to this person? Yeah, that's a great question. And even I have uh, two daughters who are 12 and and, uh, 16, and we do talk about stocks in the stock market. And they have small uh, index funds that we've set up for their college. And so one thing is just to, to read a lot and to read critically. Um, I think the Wall Street Journal is a wonderful uh, source of information. Um, the second is uh, to understand that every year, something like 75% of the actively managed funds by professionals with lots of experience do not beat the market. And, uh, you know, I think the, the first thing you want to do is just set up a, an index account, uh, could go to Vanguard, could go to Fidelity, could go somewhere else and just have money in the market and kind of track what's going on there. Read the news and, you know, take some classes. Uh, as I said, I, I have an appointment at a medical school and actually often the worst individual investors are physicians because some of them believe because they have so much deep knowledge about medicine that gosh, how hard can it be to, you know, pick stocks? Um, Often they lose a lot of money um, just because it requires training. So I think start slow. Uh, There's some wonderful websites now where you can trade on paper. You can actually, uh, you know, uh, make decisions and see how they occur before you start trading for real. So it's like, uh, I think, playing golf, right? You wouldn't, uh, if you never played golf before, you wouldn't get a pair of clubs and balls 
and go right to the PGA course, you know, in, in wherever, in Scottsdale, Arizona. You know, you would go to the driving range. So I think stocks are the same way. You, you want to chunk paper for a year until you really start putting some of your own money in the market. And uh, the nice thing now is you can put in your know, fractional shares. You can buy five shares and see what happens. So I think the first thing is to really understand how markets work. Talk to a lot of people. Um, take some classes. Education is really important. And, uh, and start with an index fund and just see how that moves. Uh, I, and lastly, I, I don't know about you, Farnoosh, but it drives me nuts when I watch the guys on TV you know, say, well, you know, Bob, the market went up 5% today because... Mm. Well, the because is complicated, right? right? There are many forces that drive markets to fluctuate day by day, month by month. Um, and so you know, when one builds a portfolio, and there are wonderful tools online that I'm sure you've talked about to build uh, you know, efficient portfolios that have uh, you know, solid returns and low risk, um, you know, it, takes, it takes some time to understand that there are internal dynamics within markets based on sentiments, based on... Uh, you know, psychology uh, based on momentum that drive prices to fluctuate very highly. So, uh, I, I mean, one of the things that blew me away uh, in graduate school was you, know, you can actually forecast the S&P 500 with 100% accuracy if you use annual data over 30 years or more. I mean, you can just fit a straight line through it. It moves beautifully. But once you, re you know, reduce that, that time frequency, once you get down to a month, a week, a day, the ability to forecast what the market's going to do goes to essentially zero. Um, and so it's very, very tough if you're a high-frequency trader, trader to consistently make money. So look for the long term, um, get educated, talk to people, go to seminars, uh, listen to uh, So Money, you know, learn <laughs> as much you. as you can. So. Yes, yes. It's, uh, it's, it's not it's like, otherwise, it's just like throwing darts. And even when you have the education, sometimes it can feel like throwing darts when you stock pick, not when you are using index funds. Uh, Dr. Zach, what would you say you would do if you won $100 million tomorrow? First thing you would do? Gosh, you know, I'm, I'm such a saver. It's terrible. Even as a child, I was a saver. Um, I think I would, uh, you know, my one uh, weakness is I grew up by the beach and I don't live by the beach now. So I would buy a beach house and honestly, I would invest the rest and mostly in index funds, mm. maybe some in real estate for some diversity. The one thing that you spend your money on that makes your life easier or better is? Gosh, having a nice car. I drive a lot because I live in Southern California and it is so nice to have a nice car. Yeah, you spend a lot of time in that car. Are you in LA or San Diego? I'm in L.A. County, right. And so, uh, yeah, you know, you have to really <laughs> be comfortable in that car because it's going to be many, many, many hours. My biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot of money on is? Uh, you know, I spent a lot of money on my kids. <laughs> oh. I'm such a softy. Uh, I just love to take them out and do fun things with them. So, um, And actually, you know, the good neuroscience research that we actually are much happier when we spend money on other people then we would spend money in ourselves. And so, again, that's part of our social nature. So, yeah, well, share the wealth. Hopefully they appreciate it. I hope so, too. <laughs> One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is? I think it's really this magic of compounding, that this, the earlier you start saving, however you're doing it, at the bank, uh, savings bonds, uh, index funds, that over time, those returns compound, and it's really never too early to start. 
When I donate money, I like to give to blank because... You know, I always give money to uh, childhood charities. Uh, my two favorite, if I can mention them, are yes, uh, World, World Vision, which uh, supports uh, children in, in developing countries, and uh, St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Uh, we, we've done a lot of work uh, on um, why people donate to charity in my lab, uh, neuroscience experiments, and we've actually used uh, uh, fundraising pleas from St. Jude's uh, with permission. And uh, um, anyway, they... they provide free care to children, uh, primarily with cancer and, and other very serious diseases. And so it's a nonprofit. Uh, they're very efficient with the money. So anyway, uh, send it to the kids. Yes. Yes. That's good. It's important. They have to be efficient, you know, otherwise it's really, um, it's, it's, it's not a good idea usually to, to give money to a charity that's going to give them a lot of that dollar to overhead. Right. And last but not least, I'm Dr. Paul Zak, and I'm so money because? Because I think money tells us about how we connect to other people. It's not just about ourselves. It's about our connection to our communities. And so I think seeing money as a way to both assign value, but to make our lives happier, healthier, and more fulfilling, I think is a valuable way to think about why we are so money. Yeah. It's not just about you. It's about your community. I love that. Thank you so much. And we wish you continued success. What a pleasure to be on with you, Varnoosh. Thank you so much. That is a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Zach, his website is pauljzach.com. He's also on Twitter at pauljzach. We've got all this info at somoneypodcast.com. And there also you can find the transcript and comments from this episode and all previous episodes. And if you have a question for me, very simple, just hop on to somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh and ask away. Every weekend, I answer your money questions. And as a reminder, if you'd like to win a free 15-minute money session with me one-on-one, hop over to iTunes and leave a review for the show. Every Saturday, I pick one new reviewer to receive a 15-minute money blitz with me. I've been doing this now for several months, have the great privilege of getting to connect with you one-on-one. I just love it. So if this is something that interests you, please, I encourage you to do it. I would love to connect with you. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Paul Zach. And thanks to you for tuning in. Hope your day is so much.